welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. Uh, still not Tyler Smith here, but new guest host, Scott and I. I'm David Bax. Uh, Tyler Smith is still ailing, um, doing a little bit better. You can find out more for yourself about what's going on with Tyler if you go to caringbridge.org slash visit slash gen... No, let me start over. Caringbridge.org slash visit slash Tyler and Jennifer Smith. That's where you can get, they, they update roughly once a week um, what's going on with Tyler's situation. There's been some positive developments recently, but it is going to be a long road with a lot of medical bills. And so there's also a link to the GoFundMe on the Caring Bridge site. If you want to help, if you were able to help, that would be, would be great. Um, but yeah, let's keep uh, Tyler in our thoughts and hopefully he'll be back to, uh, uh, to talk movies again before too, too long on this, on this podcast. Absolutely. Um, I know he would have loved, he was looking forward to doing this episode. So I'm sure he's um, bummed that he's not able to, to do it. But before we get to that episode, I want to tell you, uh, Scott, I want to tell you and the listeners about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Uh, Tyler and I use them each and every day. Oh, I don't know. He's probably not using them in the hospital right now. Actually, he might be. I don't know. Um, but uh, we generally use them each and every day of our lives. Today, uh, just now on the bus, I was using um, my uh tweaked audio tweaked audio.com earbuds to listen to the new album by a portland hardcore band called long knife and the album is called curb stomp earth and uh <laughs> it absolutely lives up to that title if you whatever you are imagining in your head yeah music, music called curb stomp earth that's what it uh lives up to it's pretty sick it's pretty great sounded great on my tweaked audio.com earbuds they're available at a low low price at tweakedaudio.com. but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Scott, yo, let's get into it, shall we? Absolutely. Uh, astute listeners, longtime listeners, might have glanced down at their their zooms or their MP3 players, or I'd say or even uh, and... new listeners could have uh, sussed that out. Yeah, and 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 they might have noticed that the number of this episode, because this is a numbered episode, not a uh, BP movie journal or a Patreon. This is a numbered episode is the number of weeks we've been doing the show. The number of the episode ends in a zero, but is not evenly divisible by the number 50. And therefore that means we're doing a profile, a tribute to someone uh, from the world of film who has passed away in, in recent months. And uh, we, well, I, I say we, Tyler and I have chosen to profile the late James Kahn. Um, and uh, Tyler can't be here, obviously. So Scott is going to fill in. Scott uh, has been um, cramming James Kahn movies, from what I understand. Um, yeah, I'd say a solid third of the ones we're going to talk about are so ones I watched in the last two weeks. That's good. Like, well... Because I know you watched at least one big one, which is good. Because oftentimes what happens with these profiles is that I will 
in the run-up to the episode, I will cram all the stuff I haven't seen, which sometimes is the more obscure stuff. Sometimes there are big blind spots. Like sure. I, I hadn't, I hadn't seen thief until a few weeks ago. That was a major blind oh, spot okay. for me. And so like, that's great. But like the Godfather movies, I haven't seen them in probably 20 years, but I didn't rewatch those. Cause I was trying to watch like other more obscure stuff. I hadn't seen. So it's, it's a weird, like, uh, uh, uh to catch 22 here is uh, that often when we're doing these profiles, the biggest name things are the ones that I have the most distance from right. because I, I have the more obscure stuff front of mind. But then I also know, I know you watched at least one movie that I have seen, but it was so long ago that I didn't remember that he was in it. Oh, awesome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, he kind of had that career where it's like, he was the star of many movies and then he just like showed up in a bunch of stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, I think what we're going to, uh, I think one thing, hold on one second. David is walking away. Sorry. Up I, had, I, I had one of the doors to this. This office has two doors in it. And um, I had one of them open. I realized my wife is probably trying to watch TV out there. Too many doors. Um, yeah. It's too many doors. Um, so uh, uh, this is something we talked about a little bit. Uh, um, I'm trying to think who our last profile was. Uh oh, who was it? Oh, oh no, it wasn't the last profile. It was we did a um a tribute on the Patreon to Paul Sorvino. Oh sure. And we were talking about the idea that post Goodfellas, a lot of Paul Sorvino's casting is almost like dependent on you understanding that he's probably from Goodfellas. Yeah. You know, and I think a certain kind of thing happened maybe with the Godfather and, and James Caan and him. Uh, Cause I would, a lot of the movies that I watched in preparation for this were his earlier movies. Hmm. Um, and you see a, a, a different side, often a more vulnerable side to him, I think pre. Yeah that and then he becomes this paragon of machismo and a lot of his casting for most of the rest of his career is based on him being like a man's man in a lot of ways i mean there are exceptions obviously but that that seems to have been a, become a defining part because of playing sonny corleone yeah and i think even more so the idea of him just as like this pure force that has to be reckoned with and that whatever his character is setting out to do, whether he's the star of the movie or just a supporting role, he's going to figure out a way to do it. And he's going to like achieve his end. Um, and I think the other thing that Godfather established is that like the guys he plays, aren't going to be the high thinkers, you know, they can be really skilled at what they do, but right, they usually kind right. of top out at like upper middle management of usually the criminal world, but yeah. of whatever world he's in, he doesn't have like the wherewithal to, oversee everything and to be the big boss but he's the guy who can get shit done yeah yeah well let's uh uh those are some of my general thoughts do you have any other general thoughts before we just jump into going chronologically because i know we have a lot of movies to cover today yeah i'd say we just dump jump in okay well i'm starting in 1966 i'm in 65 okay what do you got year, uh with red line 7000 um i think the first movie he made with howard hawks it's a race car movie it kind of fits into the what I now think of as like Rick Dalton movies where it's like, they're trying out a new leading man <laughs> and you can tell they don't know if it's going to work. And the premise is kind of loose and there's clearly not so much money put into it that they really care about the result. It's just like a filler movie that uh, some new sixties leading man is in. And he is the sixties leading man in this case. Um, 
He plays a race car driver whose best friend dies in, you know, a race car accident towards the beginning of the movie. Um, and the best friend had just gotten engaged to this girl from California who's flying out and she's flying out, not knowing that her fiance just died. And of course, you know, uh, James Conn gets to know her. One thing leads to another, et cetera, et cetera. I saw this a while ago, so I don't have like the best memory of it, but um, you can definitely see Khan um, cementing himself as a dependable leading man who has like some interesting nuances. I think a lot of really what gets established is like the James Conn persona is kind of evident in this. Um, it's a little bit more vulnerable, but he's still a little taciturn, a little reserved and a little, um, uh, you know, trying to do the right thing by this girl while still um, being kind of a young hotshot guy. Um, it's a cool movie. It's it's definitely got that kind of lazy 60s, like I said, Rick Dalton movie kind of feel where it's, you know, it's not Howard Hawks at his best, but it's got that great hangout vibe. It's got a lot of great side characters. And again, I think Khan kind of comes out of the gate pretty strong. This, I mean, that seems like a perfect transition into the 1966 movie, El Dorado, which is also Howard Hawks sort of <laughs> lazy hangout, not Howard totally. Hawks at, at his best. It's... Um, uh El Dorado has a lot of good to it. It also has a lot that um it doesn't like it's it's over two hours long and it sometimes feels it. There's like there's a whole part <laughs> of like um James Kahn's character like knows about a hangover cure, like yeah. for Robert Mitchum's character who's drunk and it like takes up weirdly like just ten minutes of the movie. <laughs> yeah, they like go to the general store and get the stuff and bring it back and mix up the hangover cure. And there's a lot, I guess that's that hangout stuff you're talking about. But um uh I found Eldorado to be kind of like uh fun but definitely lesser hawks. I really like Eldorado. Um it's definitely a remake of Rio Bravo. Um it's shorter than Rio Bravo so if you're uh, hang up is the length then certainly it's got that edge on it i also think mitchum plays a more like desperate drunk than uh, dean martin did um and i kind of just prefer james Kahn and kind of the young hotshot role to um ricky nelson um from rio bravo and you know con has got that great hat he's got this kind of great yeah, outfit great, great series yeah. of outfits throughout the movie that's pretty great um and i love the fact that he can't shoot it's a great yeah. like premise for a Western character who is still like turns out to be like a guy to be reckoned with, but the whole well, we meet is- him murdering someone with knives. Yeah, so that's and, a good and start. he still is like the like fresh faced comic relief shiny like new kid like who's yeah. a little bit awkward but like charming. And even though we're introduced to him literally killing a man with knives, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, fantastic hat. Um, the hat goes a long way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do like that whole opening scene where like he's kind of having the show or not opening scene, but the first scene he's in where he's having that showdown mm-hmm. with the guys and the bad guys like, but it shouldn't have taken four men. And he's like yeah. slightly holding that against his like henchman guy and like willing to let James Conn just kill him because he's yeah. like felt like he, his henchman was being a little ridiculous in some past incident he wasn't even a part of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, uh, to me, this is because I'm not having seen Red Line, Red Line 7000. This is a good he's clearly a strong screen presence, even like with, with Wayne and Mitchum. Oh yeah. There, he still very much establishes his own territory on the, on the screen um, and carries himself with confidence, which is a big part of his characters going forward. Yeah. It's interesting in these two movies that he like was kind of trying to slide into a Hollywood that a couple of years later was going to crumble and which he would kind of help redefine. 
but he totally could have been like a classic Hollywood leading man. And if that Hollywood had kept going, he would have been just fine too. Well, speaking on of things on the verge of the new Hollywood, um, 1967, we've got uh, a Robert Altman, an early Altman countdown. Yeah, I, I wanted to see this, but I, I have not seen it. Yeah, it's. I think I like. I think I rented it on Apple and in, in standard def, but it like sure. it, it looked all right. Um, uh, but it doesn't feel. You know, it's Altman in his like before he was establishing his voice and he, where he's kind of like a journeyman, I guess. Right. And it's a, it's a solid, um, movie. It's interesting to watch. Um, I guess 1967, like Americans had already been to space, but not to the moon yet. And that's what this movie is about that. Um, uh, Robert Duvall and James Conner, both like, um, test pilots who, um, are, preparing for moon missions and and then robert duvall is selected to be the you're going to be their solo missions um but like so robert duvall you're going to be the one who goes to the moon but then what happens is the russians land on the moon before the americans and they decide we can't send anyone from the military and like robert duvall has a military rank it's 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 going to look like an act of aggression if we send a military man up there to meet the russians so we have to send a civilian and so james Conn has to prepare for what robert duvall has been preparing for robert duvall like training him but yeah. also like very bitter that he's not the one getting right to, uh getting to go it's 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 got the you know, i mean those are two great actors and so it's got a lot of uh that that dynamic and that that tension is 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 really good um and of course it you know comes to a head when you know um james Conn's up there and things maybe are going to go are going wrong with the mission and robert duvall you know down in mission control maybe maybe he learns to set aside his grievances and help his buddy uh survive <laughs> this moonshot maybe that's what happens um but yeah it's a it's a cool like solid um uh uh i guess i don't i don't know if science fiction is the right word because it takes place right. i don't know it, it but it's about going to the moon at a time we hadn't done that yet and so it's interesting to see like how how many similar similarities there are between this and apollo 13 which is a movie that mm. was made 30 years later and after we had already been to the moon multiple times and i guess uh robert altman or whoever you know they whoever did the research they knew what was going on um because it's not that accurate but it's also not completely far-fetched either right well you know like that um what's that i've never seen it but the before chuck yeager ever broke the sound barrier there was a movie in which uh ralph richardson i think okay uh plays a pilot who uh uh, breaks the sound barrier and it's um it's like ridiculous. It makes up this like silent, the science about how he did it. That's completely like fabricated. Whereas this is, you know, it uh, feels a little more grounded in, in reality because it's really more about these, the friendship between these two men sure. than it is about the, the moon. All right. Uh, next movie I have at least is 69. It also has Duvall in it. Uh, is that the rain people? Yeah. Yeah. I think this was one of, uh, one of, if I had to put in my like cramming over the past couple months, this is one of two I would consider major discoveries for me because I think the Rain People is absolutely beautiful. Uh, it'll Pretty be a while before I revisit it because it's all it's all like very upsetting. Oh yeah, um, sure. in in a lot of ways. Um, 
but uh yeah i talked a whole bunch about countdown why don't you talk about the rain people um yeah the rain people is a movie that if it were made now would probably be considered a little problematic because uh con plays a hitchhiker um to shirley knight i think is the woman in it right uh that's right yes shirley knight shirley knight she um is kind of the main character she has just left her husband um we find out pretty quickly that she's pregnant and just doesn't feel like this is the right environment for her so she just kind of bolts in the middle of the night she picks up uh james con on the side of the road um kind of gets to know him gets to liking him um and kind of gradually discovers that he is um I always feel like I'm going to get in trouble here. Is this, is the term still mentally handicapped? I I don't know, but he's, it's not a birth thing. It's a football injury. And then that that he has a, a a mental, I don't know what the word is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, They say he has a metal plate in his head, which I guess impairs one or could. Um, And so, um, you know, she hasn't taken any overt romantic action towards him, but, had kind of been developing feelings for him and that's kind of like throws off her perception of kind of where the relationship is at and where it could be. And so it just kind of becomes a somewhat sweeter and um, more vulnerable experience for both of them um, in trying to figure out how they can settle into themselves together and separately. Um, And she's trying to find somebody who can be responsible for him um, Without. Yeah, that's what I wanted to point out because you say sweet and like there is that, but like a lot of the premise of the movie is her resisting having any responsibility or care for this guy. Like she, she's feeling it, but she keeps trying to pawn him off on other people. But that's what becomes so sweet about it is that she keeps seeing this these scenarios in which he wouldn't be well served by her just leaving him, and she keeps kind of going back for him. You know yeah. that she kind of continually feels this degree of responsibility and can't let go of that. And even as she's reached this point in her life where she's trying to let go of responsibilities and trying to kind of set herself out on her own, she has found somebody to whom she feels in debt and be slightly burdened by it. But I think it also gives her more agency maybe than she had in her marriage. It's kind of the impression I got. Right. Um, right. And I mean, Khan's really good in the movie. Like I said, it's, you know, the kind of casting that now probably would be looked at, uh, with a more critical eye, but um, he kind of throughout his career plays people who aren't, you know, the most intelligent. And I think um, this character gives him license to play somebody, I think less conniving than we usually see someone, some of his later characters. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a, um, there's a sweetness to him here that I, I feel like, um, we don't see as much la- later on. There's, yeah. I mean, I, I used the word vulnerability earlier in, in the episode, but um, uh, yeah, but it's it's a it's a I think a very well pitched performance, and that it's not he's not overdoing the 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 mental issues, you know, and, right. and making it like a, a caricature, but he's also not overdoing the like. Uh, oh, he's just a sweet innocent teddy bear like angle either. It's it's a uh, it's very uh, specifically uh, calibrated. The yeah, I mean, he plays it as a guy who's like he can tell he's missing out on something in most scenarios, but he can't quite tell what. And he's kind of constantly you can see him kind of constantly trying to play catch up. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of sadness to his situation. Oh, for sure. And, and, um, it's sad to see people willing to take advantage. Um, uh, but then, yeah, uh, Robert Duvall plays, uh, like a highway patrolman, I think. Yeah. Or local deputy or something. Yeah. It's kind of funny to see him like slide into this like smooth operator mode where he's like trying to pick up Shirley Knight. Yeah. It's, like, not again, not a register you usually see Duvall in either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's, are uh, we moving on to 1971? I'm 71. Yeah. Is it Brian's song? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't like, I didn't like this. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I didn't like it as much as I, I thought I would given it has a pretty strong reputation still. Um, I think it was in uh, Mad Slaughter sites and Alan Seppenwall wrote a, a book on the history of TV and kind of places in the top five TV movies of all time um, and earned James Conn on uh, Emmy nomination. And it seems like this kind of like put him on a, a map in a significant way as kind of like mm. a hefty dramatic leading presence. It was a hugely popular movie. It was like the most viewed, t- not only just TV movie, but any movie to be showed on TV at all of that year. Um, and so it was really like a kind of cultural force. It's about, um, so James Conn plays a good old Southern boy, not the most convincing Southern accent, but you know, he's putting it on. Um, who is starting out with the uh, Dallas Cowboys, right? Or no? No, isn't it Chicago? It's the Bears. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. Starting out with the Chicago Bears um, alongside. I love like this era of movies when like professional sports wasn't big enough to have that much control over there. I mean, I guess that the Bears come off kind of well here. Yeah. I think but so. um, you could just like put sports teams. Yeah. I always, for some reason, I always think of like. Um, the friends of Eddie Coyle has like oh, sure. actual foot. They go to a Boston Bruins game. There's just actual footage of the <laughs> Bruins playing um, in, in a movie. That's not, you know, uh, it's not a squeaky clean uh, right. family friendly NHL image. All right. So sorry, back to Brian. So yeah. So uh, he plays the titular Brian um, who's starting out with the Chicago bears in some football position. I can't remember. Um, alongside uh, Billy D. Williams, um, who is a more talented player, but obviously um, the, the movie takes place like fairly close to when it was made. I think it was takes place in like the mid sixties. I want to say, okay, um, and it's based on a true story. So uh, of course, there's the racial segregation issue and um, all the things that Billy D. Williams' character, who I cannot remember the name of, um, has to overcome. Um, and kind of the dramatic pitch of the story, so to speak, is that um, they're rooming the two of them together, apparently for the first time in at least the Bears um, franchise history. It's the first time uh, they've roomed a black man and white man together. Um, and they kind of form a fast friendship. And, you know, I, I see the ways in which the movie doesn't totally work, but I do think the ways in which the two of them bond are very honest and well thought out that they're, they don't have like a lot of real heart to hearts. It's just in the way that guys do when they like rag on each other and kind of almost open up in certain moments, but really are just like a presence in each other's lives to encourage the other to be a little bit better and to essentially their competitiveness bonds them, um, which I think keeps the movie churning, even when it can become a little bit, um i mean frankly like movie of the week which it was yeah i think that's the stuff that i was um uh unfortunately fixated too much on just not liking um the the mawkishness and the kind of like uh the sanded down edges of the race uh relation issues um 
and yeah, I mean, they're like, uh, to our younger listeners, there was a time when the bar was considerably lower for television than oh, yeah. it was for movies. Um, and uh, I think this is, yeah, calling this one of the greatest TV movies of all time is probably um, probably fitting in, in, <laughs> by that old rubric where that, right. was a, that was a big asterisk. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to say about it is, um, so James Conn's character um, starts to develop cancer and the big you know, pitch of the movie is that um, he's like dying and can't play football, et cetera, et cetera. Very TV movie of the week. Uh, Conn, I think, plays the physical uh, disintegration of that very well. Um, I think especially his final scene is some really, really strong acting and obviously physical incapacity will play a role in a future James Gunn performance. Yes. So now we move on to the big one. Yeah. The Godfather, Sonny Corleone, 1972. Which like um, you, I haven't seen it in full in quite some time. I, I rewatched some scenes of it this past week just to kind of get back okay. in the mode of it and kind of remind myself of what's so striking about the film and his performance in particular. And yeah, I mean, it's easy to see why he became a, why really everybody became a star based on the movie, but especially him. And I'm, I am one of those who prefers part two over the original, but when I get drawn to the original, I think it was really because of Khan, um, the dynamic that he brings to the movie, you know, I mean, Brando's great, of course, but I think a lot of what he's bringing to the movie is there in two as well. I think what Khan brings to it is a very uh, dynamic energy that the second one doesn't have as much. And a lot of kind of the plottiness of the first is well served by having a character who's so eager to be active at all times. Yeah, that's, um, that's definitely what I remember is, is that um, he, he has this, uh, uh, this, this energy that almost wants to uh, uh, like, pull the movie forward and yeah. and, and he, he he keeps wanting to 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 move things and 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 he's uh uh it's and it, it's it that that presence is very much missed when he's gone because he's not in he's not in the whole movie as we know right um uh and and i and i do think that that's um i don't know because it's been so long i can't remember how far into the movie it is before he he gets it. It's a good um, ways. Is it really? Okay. I remember for some reason I remember being earlier on, but, um, uh, yeah, it's still, um, you, um, uh, that he, he puts such a stamp on, on the movie that, that his, uh, his absence is, is, is palpable. Yeah. And that's like where I, I think a lot of the passive energy and like part two comes through is that, there's, you know, Michael's the more methodical leader, but he doesn't have the dynamic quality or the ability to kind of get like the uh, charisma really to gather people together the way that Khan does. And even though Sonny is clearly not, you know, designed to lead the families, he has kind of the force of personality that uh, a leader should have and kind of the warmth a leader should have that Michael clearly doesn't. Uh all right. Well, let's move on to the next year and a movie I'm very glad I watched, even though it's kind of a trifle of a movie. Uh, Howard Zeef's Slither. Haven't seen it. Um, it's it's a, a, a very like sort of uh, ramshackle crime comedy um, about a uh, let's see. He's a, a car thief. I've forgotten that. I'm just looking that up on IMDb. He's a, he's a, he's a car thief, but he gets out on parole and it's basically he's 
it's it's the the bit here or whatever is that he's he wants to go straight but he keeps getting drawn back into weird like capers and um uh it's it's got um uh peter boyle and 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 sally kellerman um and also uh alex rocco uh in a small role but um uh yeah it's it's really just a, a, a it feels very early to mid seventies sort of slapdash um, fuck around like <laughs> <laughs> movie. That's never, never taking itself too seriously. Like the whole, the guy, I can't remember who play, who's plays the actor or who plays the actor, who is the actor who plays the guy he gets out of prison with. And the guy's like, come over to, you know, I'll set you up with a job, come over to my house and like threat this guy's house. Um, all of like 30 seconds before people show up and start shooting at them from outside the house. <laughs> and like they kill the guy and the guy says like, uh, uh he, he's like, there's a secret compartment. He's like dying. Mm-hmm. There's people, we don't know who's I, who's out there shooting at him. And he's, he's like dying. And he says, hi, there's a secret, like a uh, trap door, go hide under there. So he goes and hides under there. And while he's under there, the guy's like last act before he dies is he blows himself up. <laughs> and then James Conn comes up into what was once a, ha- a house. And is now just a bunch of like shrapnel and wood and stuff in a, in a field and everyone's gone. And he just like takes a car and leave. And that's how the movie starts. Awesome. It's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a very fun and, and silly movie. Um, and also, um, like I said, Sally Kel- Sally Kellerman is the uh, the uh, female lead, the romantic lead, I guess, uh, and she is also somewhat recently passed away last mm. last few months or so. So R.I.P. to Sally Kellerman, too. Um, uh, should we move on to nineteen seventy four? Yeah, I mean, I can start with another like total screw around seventies movie that I, I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen it, so I don't remember it that well. But Freebie and the Bean. Um, okay is a whole lot of fun as i recall it's like similar to like you saying they like start the movie by kind of randomly blowing up a house or whatever yeah <laughs> there's a certain degree of seven news movies where they just seem to have too much money and seem to like have to spend it in some way that's like vaguely irresponsible so there's like all kinds of ridiculous car chases and car crashes and stuff in this movie um i think it's most famous now for being um very uh politically incorrect in the way that james Caan and alan arkin talk to each other um they right. play the um respective freebie and the bean um but if you can hang with that uh there's a lot of really funny lines and certainly pairing two guys like alan arkin and james Caan um make for a lot of really fun scenes and a lot of great energy the two of them in the 70s really we're just, I mean, like a lot of actors, especially the men in the seventies, were just really letting it all hang loose and putting themselves out there and just having a ball. Um, yeah, like I said, it's been a long time since so I don't remember any specifics other than that. But um, it's definitely con in full movie star mode. I've I've never seen it, but I'm looking at the cast list now. Weird coincidence. So Slither, he stars with Sally Killerman. Right. Sally Kellerman. In this movie, the female lead appears to be Loretta Swit the two actresses who played Margaret Houlihan in MASH. Oh. Sally Kellerman in the movie and Loretta Swit on the TV show. Right on. Interesting. I, I, I don't know I'm, I'm MASH as well as you do, but uh, there you go. Um, it's a good, good TV show. Uh, uh, um, 
Well, other, I, no, go ahead. Yeah, the, the Gambler is also 1974. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, this is a, a, a terrific movie. Speaking of uh, Paul, Paul Sorvino, uh, R.I.P. Um, he he plays a um, uh, a bookie, I guess. He plays the. Yeah. There's multiple bookies in the movie, but he plays the one who's like is kind of friendly or like wants James Con to stop destroying his life. <laughs> There's always that still one take his bets. Yeah. Yeah. Um I'd seen uh, I had seen the Mark Wahlberg remake from 2014 or 15 or whatever. I, I hadn't seen this before. I, I watched it and uh it's obviously better than the original and and um feels obviously better now uh, better than the remake is what I meant to say. And feels obviously now like an um uh a huge influence on Uncut Gems. Oh yeah. Uh, Cause it has that same energy of just the guy, like he owes so much money and then he makes a bet and he wins. And he's like, and, and there's a part of you as a viewer is like, Oh, thank God he's got the money to pay off his debts. But instead yeah. he just turns around and bets that money. More. He's the gambler. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is the exact scenario of every gambling movie, you know, it's in, it's in California split. It's in, um, mm -hmm. what was the other gambling movie I was just thinking of? Um, well, Mississippi Grind, Grind and yeah. um, that one that uh, freaking Joe Swanberg made with uh, Jake Johnson. I can't remember what it's called, but anyway, every gambling movie has that exact same arc of like, yeah. there's the guy, he, he starts out in the hole, comes a little bit out of the hole, but only to get further back into the hole yeah. and on and on and on. Um, I do like that uh, James Conn is a teacher, which like, is not the kind of profession you would expect a degenerate gambler to have. And you certainly wouldn't expect a teacher to dress like James Gunn does in this movie with like the super button down 70s shirt, just like yeah. letting the chest hair hang out. Um, but it is a definitely iconic con look. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I guess I wasn't surprised he was a teacher because Mark Wahlberg was in the Mark Wahlberg course, yeah. I knew it was coming. Um, but uh, yeah, also the fact that he comes from uh not he's not just well off. He comes from a a wealthy family. Yeah. Um. And uh, I don't know what we're supposed to glean about what that, how that informed his relationship to money. Well, it's like that he essentially doesn't know the bottom and wants to see if he can get there, kind of thing. And right. knows in the back of his head, even if he does, he's still got a windfall waiting for him if uh, he really gets desperate. Um. All right, let's move on to 1975. It is worth at least uh, mentioning that it does show oh. up at the end of Godfather Part Two. Um, oh, see, I didn't even remember the. But yeah, I'm seeing it here, <laughs> uncredited. On yeah. yeah, at the very end of Godfather Part Two, there's a little flashback scene to um, one of Vito's birthday parties, um, and the kids are all together, kind of talking about. Um, oh, it's right before Michael's about to go off to the war, so it takes place, you know, a few years before um, oh. Part One um so it was new footage that they shot yeah they shot it for part two um, Oh, cool so yeah the whole point is that michael was supposed to be the college boy but he says he's going to go join the army and so they're having a big debate about that and you no know, deciding not to tell Vito at least right away i can't remember exactly how that scene goes but it kind of like it, it's exactly what we we're talking about where it reminds us everything that we've been missing because sunny isn't there because Vito isn't there because michael's kind of lost his family along the way mm -hmm. and shows i guess that that part of Michael, the need to be independent of his family had always been there, but also how much warmth that he's lost and how much humanity he's lost because of it. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a very brief scene. I think it's only composed of a single shot, but um, Khan can come in and kind of bring it all back. Uh, all right. 1975. I mean, I guess this is like you were saying with Phoebe and the Bean, very much movie star material, I guess, but I, I am not a fan of Norman Jewison's rollerball. I hate it. I think it's so uh, boring. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I'm glad that you feel that way. It's, 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 it's self-important for, for something that should have so much fun in it. Yeah. It's not fun. No, it's not a, at all. like, a, it's supposed to be like this violent sci-fi dystopian movie, but it's, I, mean, I guess dystopia isn't fun, but tell that to the last 15 years of movies. Um, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's dull and overlong. Yeah. I mean, it's all that stuff before kind of like Star Wars and John Carpenter reminded people how to have fun sci-fi movies from like post 2001, all these 70 sci-fi movies were just such a drag. And it's like, yeah, I I know we almost like lost democracy for a second there. And we were coming out of Vietnam and the world does look a little dim, but just have like some scene of tension at least, like have something to juice the plot a little bit. Yeah. And yeah, I, I mean, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I don't remember Khan being given a lot to do, kind of just like tampered down and made to be in the kind of like 70s sci fi, dull leading man role. But he's also like a star athlete. Right. Which he's played before, but this is like the boring, sad version, I guess. Yeah. It was, this is somehow less fun than him dying of cancer as a <laughs> Chicago bear. Yeah. He was having a ball then compared to being yeah. a freaking rollerball star. Um, well, I'm glad we're on the same page as Rollerball because there are people who really like it, and I don't. Uh, I know. I, I remember I just sitting it. there, however long ago, watching it, just being like, "Be over! Is, <laughs> how is this still going?" Um, another bit of trivia: um, John McTiernan remade two different Norman Jewison movies. He remade Rollerball, right. and he remade The Thomas Crown Affair. Oh yeah, no good for him, I guess. I, I never saw. Weird. I guess I haven't seen either of his remakes, so I, I can't speak to... I'm sure he at least made Rollerball more entertaining. I, yeah, that one I haven't seen. I've seen, I've seen both Thomas Crown Affairs, and uh, I actually think his is probably better. Okay. Well, <laughs> McTiernan's is better. Yeah, the original's nothing to really write home about, you know. We, yeah. we, we all love the big, I don't know, rotating kiss scene or whatever it is. Right. But um, that's about all I remember from it. So I know I've got nothing until 1978 after this. Uh, my next is 80. Okay. So uh, yeah, 1978, um, Alan J. Uh, Pakula. I don't know how you say his name. I Pakula? trade off on it. That and Pacula. Pacula sounds too much like Dracula. Well, sure. But you know, <laughs> whoever invented the name Pakula or whatever it is, didn't know that. Uh, Alan J. Pakula's Comes a Horseman, which is... Um, I didn't know, like I'd heard of this movie um, and I knew obviously the title. I didn't realize that it's, it's kind of like uh, power of the dog era. Like it's a Western, but it's like a later Western where there are mm. cars and stuff. Sure. <laughs> you, you know, but it's like still very much a Western description of a time period. So like there will be blood times. Yeah, I guess. But I, cause I don't want to say modern Western cause it's not like it takes place in the seventies. Right. Yeah, of course. It's, it's just a post <laughs> post automobile Western. <laughs> Where they had the horseless carriage, but also still some horses. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and this is another one that is, I feel like we're like two in a row now where I'm going to say like, it, I, I think it's better than Rollerball um, 
simply by virtue of being, you know, shot in the American West and is often a very, a very yeah. pretty uh, movie and also has some, like, <laughs> I, I think this is also a, not like Phoebe and the Bean. I think this is actually a prestige like pricey movie because right. there are, they're like, um, there's an oil type of storyline where um, um, on Jason Robard's land, which neighbors Jane Fonda's, they're like blowing up the land to try and find oil. So there's like these really stunning shots of these like beautiful vistas of this valley. And then just like, just like huge explosions, uh, uh, going off. And they also burned down a house later in the movie. It's, um, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that's nice to look at the, the, it's, uh, Gordon Willis shot it, oh, uh, who sure. also shot the Godfather movies. So, um, it's, it's got that, uh, but it is, it's a little limp and, um, it's, uh jane, jane fonda so uh james Conn is like a i guess he's a cowboy or whatever who um signs on as jane fonda's like helping hand because she's like trying to run a ranch by herself and jason robards is the like um local like ranch what's someone looking for like baron who uh wants to buy her her land and she doesn't want to sell and so james Conn has hires on it's like a hired hand but then becomes her full partner and then maybe becomes a little more if mm. you know what i mean um no i have no idea <laughs> uh You've lost but me. i think that uh, uh, a, a lot of the um i, I don't know it, it it maybe i'm stupid but <laughs> like a lot of the intrigue is so downplayed that I kept going like, wait, why is like, why does Jason Robards hate that other guy? Mm, like I, fair. like I kept forgetting cause it's, it's, it's all simmering in a way that maybe, uh, loses the, the boil a little bit as it, as it goes on. But, um, Richard Farnsworth is in it, uh, in the early going, um, as, Richard Farnsworth tends to do in movies. He dies. <laughs> Most famous. That made me think of a thing Duvall said, where he like was reflecting on the last twenty years of his career. He's like, I've been dying for too long in movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's also speaking of people who don't last very long into the movie. Early on, there's a very uh, early performance by Mark Harmon, a young Mark Harmon, who. Um, is uh just stunningly handsome at this point sure. i mean i've been obviously mark Harmon is handsome to this day but just uh stunningly handsome and then and then he dies it's sad yeah too handsome to live <laughs> yeah i guess so all right so you're we're moving on to 1980 yeah if that's the next uh yeah no years in between no yeah um i got uh james Conn's one directed feature the sole time that he stepped behind the camera couldn't take it anymore. Uh, 1980s hide in plain sight. I actually just uh, watched this like two hours ago. Um, okay. Crammed in at the last minute. Really glad I did. Uh, it's I, I can I can see why it didn't leave much of an impression at the time, and it kind of failed at the box office. So I can see why he didn't direct another movie. But it's kind of too bad because it's a pretty strong uh, film. It's got a terrific premise for starters, which for a 90 minute movie is sometimes plenty on its own. Um, the premise is that, uh, Khan plays a divorced guy who, um, really loves his kids, really wants to be part of his kids' lives as much as possible. Um, his wife is, has gotten together with a kind of shady character who we quickly discover is involved in crime. 
Um, and they get married kind of against James Conn's protests. He's like, you know, I don't want my kids growing up in this kind of environment with this kind of shady guy. Um, and then one day he goes to pick the kids up and they're not there. The whole family has gone. The house is just emptied. Uh, he kind of quickly figures out that probably they were moved into witness protection program. And as the witness protection program is designed to do, Khan uh, has no way to access them. He has no way to contact them or see them at all. And it becomes about his uh, legal fight to do so. Um, it's based on a real, a true story that at the time it seemed like it was still kind of in litigation um, at the time the movie was made, that is. Um, and it's just spare enough that these kind of sketches of a premise keep it going. It's really kind of smartly structured and smartly told. There's just enough in one scene to kind of get you to the next and kind of leave you to fill in the blanks of kind of what connected the two scenes together, um, which kind of fills out what could become kind of a thin series of, you know, James Conn going to various offices and demanding more information or more help or whatever. Um, and Conn's really good in it. He plays kind of a uh, blue collar worker who's in and out of work. He has a steady gig, but they can't always keep the same people on hours, that kind of thing. Um, so he's kind of struggling to make ends meet. He's recently met a uh, school teacher and kind of fall in love with her. And they are kind of starting a new family. She gets pregnant pretty soon. Um, and so she's like, you know, I want you to have your kids back. But at the same time, like, we're trying to start a family too. And all these kind of different elements build in such a gradual way. I don't even think the kids and mom go missing until like a half hour into the film. So um, the premise kind of almost catches us off guard. And by the that time, there's only an hour left in the movie. So um, there's no sense of it like kind of dragging out, even as um, you can tell it's kind of wearing on Khan's character. And there comes points in the time when it becomes potentially advantageous where he should get aligned with the mob because they're also looking for this guy because they want to kill him for ratting them out. And so they're like, you know, we can help you. But he realizes that that'll just bring his kids closer to danger. And so he's kind of torn in all these really interesting directions and he's not um, savvy enough to figure out the best ways out of them. Always. Uh, he's this movie's smartly told in that um, Khan's character isn't the smartest guy and isn't always the nicest guy. And that kind of holds him back from getting his ultimate goal. Even as, I mean, like I said at the top, it's James Khan, So we can tell he's going to be determined. He's going to get to his goal, no matter what, and kind of see his plan all the way through, but he's just not quite smart enough to go about it in quite the best way. Um, so yeah, it's got a lot of great texture to it. It takes place in Buffalo and has what feels like a lot of really honest local flavor. Um, and mm. yeah, I really, even before kind of the premise kicks in, I just found it to be this really charming family uh, drama slash romance. And then by the time the plot kicks in, the characters are so endearing and so interesting that um, it's more than enough to carry us through. Uh, yeah, really strong movie. I wish he'd direct it again, but um, strong solo effort. Okay, so moving on to 1981 and yeah, the biggest uh, blind spot, I think, on my list that I got to fill in here, obviously, Michael Mann's Thief. It's been something I've been meaning to get to for forever, and I guess I was just waiting for James Conn to die <laughs> to, to watch it, it for, for some reason. Um, uh yeah, I, uh, um, it has, I mean, I, I want to talk more about James Conn than, than Michael Mann, but it, I, I still do want to talk about Michael Mann and how, uh, 
in awe I can be sometimes of the way his movies feel like they're big. There's, there's so much, there's a, there's a bigness and a boldness to them. And yet they move like, I'm trying to think of like a, a, a metaphor, like a, like a, like a, like a tank, but on like, ice skates that makes sense like <laughs> sure. there's a hugeness to his movies but also an agility and a delicacy yeah. um that uh it's very a very difficult needle to to thread and so this is in many ways it's a like a a, a big crime movie you know that has like slow motion shootouts and um and it has a uh, James Caan playing a. Uh, I talked about that, that swaggering machismo thing uh, earlier. That's definitely what he's got going on here. He basically like gets he gets the girl like by force, just like well, walks yeah. into the bar and like grabs her and is basically like you're with me now. And then she is uh, for, us, <laughs> for the rest of the movie. Um, uh, yeah, speaking about things, speaking of things that wouldn't play well uh, today, I don't think. Um, uh, but there's also so much, uh, beauty to the movie and, and there's the, um, uh, the, the main center, like centerpiece, like heist sequence that has a lot of, um, it has a lot of what I'm talking about. It is people like pounding their way or using machinery to blow their way into, uh, into a vault, but it's also gorgeous to look at because there's these sparks, uh, sparks flying, um, you've also got, a, I, I feel like we don't get this enough anymore. A remnant of, uh, eighties filmmaking, um, men bonding on the beach. <laughs> sure. Like after the successful heist, right. James Gunn and, and, um, Jim Belushi, uh, are on the pair. beach. And it reminded me of like, obviously top gun and like beach volleyball, but then, um, uh, Rocky three and, uh, okay. Rocky, Rocky and Apollo, like, they're like they're racing on the beach to train, but also they're kind of like fucking with <laughs> right. each other a little bit. <laughs> like just yeah, men on men on the beach. Uh, the beach was a big place for male bonding in the eighties and movies. David, uh, if you want to go to the beach with me, you can just <laughs> say what I'm come in this like back doorway yeah. of like talking about Rocky Three. Yeah. Um anyway, but uh yeah, James Conn, I guess much like we were both saying about his performance in in the Godfather movies is um just uh, uh, a a force in this movie to be oh, yeah. to be reckoned with. He's he's punching his way or headbutting his way from one scene to the next through through the movie itself. It feels like at times. Yeah, I mean, this is like the con performance for me. I think for a lot of people, and I'm not like like I like Michael Mann in his movies, all right, but this I think works so well for me because of Con and because he's so charismatic. And he's just filmed in an interesting way where like, I mean, Khan's a big guy and big broad shoulders, but he, I, he looks like gigantic in a lot of shots of this movie. Um, <laughs> and certainly like that positions him well, every time he has to go toe to toe with anyone who thinks they can get one up on him. Um, this is probably the chief like exemplar of what I mean of like, he doesn't play a guy at the top of the food chain criminal wise, but he's the most talented guy in the bunch. And he's going to come out on top because he knows his shit and he knows himself. He knows what he's capable of and he knows what he can do. Um, and 
watching him kind of juggle the criminal aspect, the relationship stuff, um, and trying to like also build out something of a life outside of crime is so good. And like just him getting on the phone and be like, the one, two jobs tops, just get out. Um, like every scene he brings so much, um, intention and direction to that. It just kind of like forces the movie along. Whereas I think, I I don't know. I I feel like sometimes for me, Michael Mann movies can feel a little sleepy. Um, but Khan definitely keeps it alive. Uh, man, I like that you're the, the, uh, Michael Mann, uh, naysayer. Um, I know don't tell Twitter. Yeah. Everyone loves Michael Mann now, but I, uh, I'm guilty. I've always, um, uh, even before I really knew who he was, I think. Um, well, I think like I probably the f- weirdly the first movie I knew, like sat down knowing I was watching a Michael Mann movie was probably The Insider, which is a great movie. But now when I think of what makes a Michael Mann movie, it's not one of the ones that come up. Right. I look in, re- in retrospect, I realize like, oh, the things I loved about Heat and Manhunter, those are the Michael Mann things that that I that I love. And then of course, Public Enemies is a you know, a milestone for me. Right. All right. Um, I'm jumping all the way to 1990. Uh, I got 87, which uh, is uh, gardens of stone, which reteams in with Francis Ford Coppola. Um, it came about at a tough time for Coppola because midway through the shoot, um, his son died in like mm-hmm. a horrific accident. Um, but actually I didn't know this. So I knew that part of it. And that like, he kept kind of carrying on kind of making the movie, while grieving his son. Um, but apparently one of the guys who was originally cast in the movie was like involved and somewhat responsible for his son's death and like got charged with, I think either charged with or um, accused of manslaughter as like a result of the investigation to his son's death. So that guy of course was fired off the movie pretty quickly and replaced with some other guy. Um, but uh, this is another one that positions James Caan as like a certain degree up on the food chain and, uh, one where he wants to be a little bit higher. Uh, he plays a career army guy who has somehow landed a job, essentially just burying people during the Vietnam war. So he's the guy who's in charge of the kind of ceremonies that go on to bury soldiers, all those 21 gun sluice and handing off the flag to the widows and all that kind of stuff. Somebody has got to manage all that. And that's James Conn's job. Uh, it's actually kind of he and James Earl Jones heading up that operation and the two of them have amazing chemistry, as you might expect. Um, they're kind of these two longtime army guys. I think they served in Korea together. Um, so they have like a really strong relationship and just kind of that great shorthand uh, thing that you see in a lot of strong army movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and Khan's also trying to romance a reporter played by Angelica Houston. And the two of them also have that kind of great, similar to Thief, actually him and um, Tuesday Weld. There's a lot of con movies where he's kind of trying to put the moves on a woman. He's less forceful in, about it in this than he was in Thief. <laughs> but um, we'll see, I think, as he gets older, a recurring motif of James Conn trying to woo a woman who's a little bit outside of his league and trying to uh, make himself seem a little bit more educated, a little bit more refined, a little bit more together than he might have things. And that is definitely the case with uh, Gardens of Stone. And it's interesting for it to come about in 1987, where you kind of get the rise of 
uh, shall we say, boomers feeling good about themselves movies where it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, we all knew the Vietnam War was bad kind of thing. And like a lot of movies start to come out over the next few years of like really patting themselves on the back for like being so right about history and all that kind of stuff. And this is kind of like at the dawn of that, but it still acknowledges the kind of like culture of the time was kind of in favor of Vietnam. And so mm. Khan and James Earl Jones are both like kind of right-minded, not right morally, but right-wing-minded guys, mm. but not like gung-ho. Khan kind of has some objections to the war that are more like strategic. He just doesn't see it as a, win- a war they can win. And certainly as a guy who's responsible for burying all the young men who are you know, coming home in caskets, mm-hmm. seeing kind of the bad side of it. Um, so it, it kind of approaches the war in a more nuanced way than I think um, the ensuing years would in that it's about a lot of guys who really want to be part of a good war that is being well fought and are kind of being let down by army leadership. And, uh, you know, it's definitely not one of Coppola's strongest movies. I, you can see that he wasn't as, you know, understandably so, given personal circumstances, he was kind of um, disengaged from it and came apart about a time in his career when he wasn't necessarily making a series of masterpieces. You know, I really like Peggy Sue Got Married, and especially Tucker, A Man in His Dream. Um, but, there, you know, it's not, um, you know, there's still kind of paycheck gigs and he's t- still taking them to um, get himself back on his mm. feet. But uh, Khan's really good. James Earl Jones is really good. You got like Elias Kateas in there as a young hotshot. Um, definitely like in his like full twitchy wannabe Brando mode. But um, <laughs> there, there's enough good in it to keep it going. And it, like I said, it really exemplifies a lot of Khan's strengths. Uh, all right. Um, now, Dick Tracy, I haven't seen since I was a kid. And also James Khan's character dies like in the first scene. I, I know. I, I <laughs> so saw I it really many years ago. So I remember nothing other than that he's in it and it's worth mentioning. Uh, yeah. Uh, but then also in 1990 is Rob Reiner's Misery, which I will let you take the lead on because I know you just watched it. Yeah. Um, it, one that had been on my list for years and like you with Thief, apparently I was just waiting for James Conn to die. It, yeah. <laughs> frustratingly, it had been floating in and off of like HBO Max and Hulu and various other streaming sources for years. And I just like kept putting it off for that reason. Like, oh, I always have a way to watch it. But then sure enough, when Khan dies, the freaking ghouls at uh, whoever pulls these levers jacked it up to a $15 buy only. Fortunately, my good friend David Bax has the Blu-ray and lent it to me. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, yeah, which led to you seeing me in my pajamas, which is rare. No one sees me in my pajamas. <laughs> but you came by to buy a bar of the Blu-ray and I was already... Already way in on nighttime. Yeah. Um, I woke you up out of bed like Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> and you came down in your nightcap and you're... <laughs> Holding a candlestick, candle, yeah. 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 Who goes there? Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, it was interesting watching it because it's like such a culturally like forceful movie and one that like has a lot of like iconography in the popular consciousness and it's a lot like stranger than i I kind of expected it's certainly a lot funnier and shot by barry sonnenfeld and it kind of has a certain like cohen vibe to it because he shot you know all the early cohen brothers movies and it has kind of that same like wide angle lens weird angles on it kind of perspective that really juices what certainly could be a very um visually dull premise of a guy gets in a car accident and is trapped in this woman's house because she's crazy. Um, mm. And just like the texture of um, Kathy Bates character is like so unusual and so strange how like she can be like so terribly sweet. I thought she would just be like nonstop crazy the whole movie. 
but um, she's like very charming and very like simple and sweet in a lot of ways. And uh, you know, they, they apparently turned through like offering this part to like a dozen different actors before they got around to James Caan. Um, mm-hmm. And you can see why, cause it's not a typical James Caan kind of role. You don't usually picture him as a housebound author. Um, usually he needs to be like on his feet a little bit more and like, punching people yeah, or something. and this is what we yeah you you pointed out he's normally more physical and less brainy and here it's the the exact opposite but i think because like what i've been talking about with like you get the sense with james Conn's characters that they're gonna see their way through any situation no matter what and kind of get their goals met uh there's a certain like steeliness that we and reserve and uh determination that we associate with con that i think serves this character well uh, one of the things I read and as they were going around trying to offer it to people is that Warren Beatty was interested, but he wanted to make the character less passive. James Conn didn't kind of have those reservations. And I think he is so good at finding ways to make uh, this guy so active. And you can see just by the way he looks at Annie in different scenes and kind of the way he responds, what he's thinking and what he's trying to achieve by the way he's saying um, what could be pretty routine lines. And then, I mean, like I said, with when we talk about Brian's song, like the way he plays the physical limitations of the character, the pain that the character has to endure to do really simple activities is really good. And like, if as much as Kathy Bates, understandably, I think rightly gets all the recognition for the performance, I don't think the movie would work as well if somebody like Khan wasn't giving it so much effort. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen it in, in a long time, um, but I saw it. Uh, multiple times when i was when i was younger uh and yeah i definitely remember the the humor that you're uh talking about and also again richard farnsworth um is is in this movie and um Doesn't the last time it. i watched it yeah yeah <laughs> um but yeah the last time i watched this movie i remember thinking like oh there's also this whole like mystery like detective and yeah. like like richard farnsworth's character is like he's it, there's another version of this movie to be made where he's like the small town. Uh, um, oh my God, Sam Spade or something. Sure. And I don't mean to spoil a 30 year old movie, but him, the way he dies got a genuine laugh out of me. Yeah. I was like, so taken off guard and so amused by the way that was presented. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of Stephen King um, in it. And some of the, the goofiness uh, that is that that's that's funny a lot of i mean a lot of um kathy bates dialogue comes right out of oh, the, yeah. the the book because um, sure. you can't have a character talk like a stephen king character and not sound a little crazy at least he's supposed <laughs> to be crazy sure um all right let's move on <clears throat> next up for me is 92 what do you have uh not till 96 so go okay so uh 1992's honeymoon in vegas um Listeners might remember that uh, a, a while, I guess over a year ago, we did an episode of the podcast, just my wife, Natalie, and I, where we talked about all of the movies that she loved that she made me watch for the first time during the pandemic. Right. And uh, some were winners and some were not. And then <laughs> Honey- Honeymoon in Vegas is, I would say, mostly in between. Um, <laughs> but it has... Uh, so the premise is uh, uh, Nick Cage and Sarah Jessica Parker are honeymooning in, in Vegas and then James Caan plays a uh, rich guy who's probably a criminal um, who takes uh, an interest in Sarah Jessica Parker and uh, 
it has the, the indecent proposal type of like, oh, you sure. know, let me hang, let me take your wife to dinner or whatever. And then he ends up taking her to Hawaii and everything. Anyway, um, it's got this kind of long, um, middle section that's, uh, uh, that drags a, a little bit, but it ends the final act of this movie is worth watching the movie for because oh, yeah. the way that it has to like the, the pieces it has to move into place to have this finale where they're on the street on the sunset strip and Nicholas Cage is dressed as Elvis and shows Sarah Jessica Parker is dressed as a Vegas showgirl, even though neither of them are those things. Right. <laughs> um, it, it, it's really fun watching the movie, getting the, get those things into, into place. But um, yeah, James Conn's is just kind of uh, playing on his, I mean, this is maybe an early version of what we'll see in a, at least one of the, probably a couple of the movies where, um, the fact that he's known one of his, maybe his most famous role um, is a mobster. That's kind of why he's cast here is to yeah. be like the Italian criminal guy. Although his character's <laughs> name is Tommy Corman, which uh, is not Italian. So there. Um, okay. So uh, I spent too much time on honeymoon in Vegas because I want to talk about, it. I talked about the rain people being a major discovery for me. The other major discovery for me, a movie I didn't even know existed. 1993's flesh and bone is a mm. great movie. Oh yeah. The only, I didn't even realize that Steve Clovis had directed anything besides the fabulous Baker boys. And I love the fabulous Baker boys. Yeah. He directed another movie, uh, called flesh and bone. It's the only other movie he's directed. Mm. Um, and, um, it's, uh, it's a small role or not. I mean, it's James kind of not one of the stars in the movie. This is a Dennis Quaid, Meg Ryan movie where sure. Dennis Quaid plays a, a, a character. And this is very like, it, this almost is a modern like a, a Western type movie that's set in 1993. Um, Dennis Quaid plays a character who, as it, who was raised by a father who was a career criminal and murderer and would use his son as a child to assist him in robberies and home invasions and stuff. And so we get a little bit of that at the beginning. It's, it's a uh, uh, pretty horrific. And then we just jump to the present day and Dennis Quaid is trying to, you know, like his, like James Conn and Slither, he's trying to go straight. He's got a job where he drives around supplying vending machines and stocking vending machines at all these like, you know, shit kicker bars and gas stations and, sure. and, and, and truck stops and stuff. And in, in, in the West. Uh, and then he meets up with, uh, uh, a woman who's, uh, on the run from, uh, a not so good husband played by Meg Ryan. And, uh, at the same time that she comes into his life, his father comes back into his life and that's James Khan. And, uh, is it a coincidence that those two things are happening at the same time? Is it not? You have to watch the movie to find out, hmm. but um, yeah. So this is a, a, a movie where he's playing again, a like small time hood, but uh, I'm not sure in so many movies that we're talking about, even like when he's, we talk about him, like, you know, pushing women around in, in, in thief uh, and, and, and stuff like that. And he's obviously like not a good guy, necessarily he's still often a good guy here he is playing just full-on the villain of the movie and he's mm. terrifying and he's great um 
And he has, when he comes back into the picture, he has enlisted a new, a new helper in his crimes played by a very young Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow plays like a, uh, uh, a conniving drifter, uh, uh, like teen, teenager, or maybe she's supposed to be 20 or so. Yeah. Um, fantastic. It's just, um, a really uh, great movie and a, and a big surprise for me. And I don't know why Steve Clovis has not didn't direct more movies. I'm guessing maybe flesh and bone was a, a I was flop say, probably and, money. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It might've been a flop and, and, uh, and he didn't, uh, get the chance to, he had to go back to writing, you know, franchise movies, <laughs> which is <laughs> mostly, I feel like he's known for like Harry Potter scripts. Right and sounds good steve clovis yeah but i don't know have you seen the fabulous baker boys because i think you yeah i love the fabulous baker boys yeah Uh, now i really want to see this yeah well it's on uh well it's on prime i know you're not an amazon guy it's also on paramount plus if you have that that's how i watched it well i do use a family member's prime account from time to time okay okay um that's awesome yeah 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 it's 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 really good um and it's a great like it's an interesting role for Meg Ryan at this time, like sure. already established as America's sweetheart. And here we see her as kind of like, she's, you know, she's very likable, but she's also kind of like a, a fuck up and, and, uh, um, you know, you know, living at the, in the, the dregs of society, kind of a bottom feeder type. It's, um, a surprising role for her in that, in that time. Yeah. If I had to wager, just, quick glance at the movie's box office did not do well <laughs> all right well 1996 we've got two should we start with bottle rocket uh sure yeah um i haven't seen it in a long time it's never been my favorite well nothing's your favorite wes anderson <laughs> I, I, I mean grand budapest is my favorite i think i right. for a long time i was saying fantastic mr fox and i do love fantastic mr fox but i think grand budapest is my is my favorite but, um, and I never saw Darjeeling limited, but, um, Oh, that's become one of my big favorites. Yeah. Um, bottle rocket. I still get a huge kick out of and cons really, I mean, of course cons really good in it, but it's great. I mean, one, he's got a great character name. Just Mr. Henry is a great yeah. character name. Um, and the fact that he's again, it's like, he's a big deal to a bunch of people who don't matter, which in turn makes him kind of a small deal. And it's funny, like right. how much Owen Wilson talks about how much he loves Mr. Henry. And then you meet him and he's just this like ridiculous guy who like has these like leopard print clothes and terrible furniture and it's like tiger tooth necklaces and all this kind of stuff. And like, he is clearly impressed the way all the characters look at him. They're clearly impressed by him, but we look at him and we're like, like this guy's kind of a loser. Um, <laughs> but Khan can like embrace that while still like displaying enough charisma that you can see why he's gathered all these guys kind of around him. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's a pretty small role for him and I've read mixed reports on whether he like got along on the set. All right. Like some of the, articles are like he had fun joshing around with Owen Wilson and stuff and others are like he just didn't understand what Wes Anderson was going for and Wes Anderson mm-hmm. wasn't experienced enough a director to kind of like guide a guy like James Caan through the movie and I know that Wes Anderson originally wanted Bill Murray for the role so maybe like that played into it but still like 
in any given scene, it, he's totally magnetic and totally interesting. And the fact that he's fine looking silly for a first time director and fine, like playing this kind of yeah. like, just kind of like mid-level pathetic guy um, is pretty cool and helps uh, kind of juice the movie a little bit. And then the other one in 1986, which <laughs> I know you watched, I forgot that James Conn was in this because I haven't seen it since it was like a new release sure. on VHS, but I was like on following you on Twitter and I was like, I wonder why Scott's watching Eraser. <laughs> and like, oh, James Conn's in Eraser. I don't remember. I remember, I do remember Arnold Schwarzenegger shooting an alligator in the face. That's the main thing I remember about Eraser. I'm surprised the main thing you don't remember is the plane, like, not crash, but like, I guess Arnold Schwarzenegger's plane escape because that scene freaking rocks. And actually, this movie had been on my list for a while because I've been trying to watch more like classic Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, which I kind of like. I never went through that like 13, 14 year old boy phase of really okay. getting into ridiculous action movies. Um, and I guess I'm just now catching up with myself in that regard. Um, so yeah, Schwarzenegger plays uh, kind of a witness protection program guy whose job is erasing people. And he seems to chiefly erase people by blowing up their house, which he does on two occasions in the first half hour of this movie in order to rescue them from uh, various criminal forces, which is pretty great. Um, James Kahn plays his kind of like uh, boss, I guess like his handler, the guy who like gives him assignments, who it turns out is maybe uh, perhaps the bad guy. in the Oh, and, but because it's James Gunn, he's not like the mastermind of this arrangement. He's servicing some political mucky muck um, in order to get some arms deal through the, um, you know, through the world and make somebody money on blowing shit up. Um, so at first, like Khan shows up and he's just kind of like a very serviceable managerial type. And I was like, Khan needs a paycheck. I get it. You know, these aren't the salad years for James Khan anymore. But then like the movie shifts and makes him the bad guy. And he really kind of kicks into high gear. And I'm like, oh, Khan's Khan's having a ball here. And he and Schwarzenegger make great opposing forces. It kind of like got me thinking about the way that like a lot of new Hollywood guys were kind of getting slotted into villain roles here. You know, like you think of Dennis Hopper in Speed mm -hmm. or shit. What was the other one I was thinking of? Um not quite the same, but like uh, Gene Hackman kind of playing a, a, a slightly opposing force for most of the enemy at the state. Um, mm -hmm. Just these guys kind of shifting into different phases of their careers where they need a younger, more popular star to get the movie going. Oh, no, John Voight in Mission Impossible is the other big one I was thinking of. Oh, right. Um, where it's these guys who are kind of like easily positioned as experts in their field or in several of these cases, like mentor figures at first, who then kind of turn on the main character. Um, it was kind of an interesting twist that uh, on audience sympathies at the time. Um, but Eraser is a pretty fun movie. Like I said, it's got that plane escape, which is freaking awesome, where Schwarzenegger uh, gets drugged on a plane. Um, and then in order to make his escape, like throws open the emergency exit, quickly realizes that if he, if he just jumps out, he'll get sucked into the engine. And so he like kind of like, hurls himself out and like grabbing on the side of the plane, like Tom Cruise. And then he tries to pull the parachute out to like strap that to him. It flies out of the plane. And then he just like skydives after the parachute catches up with the parachute and deploys it. <laughs> and then the plane turns around and James Scott's like, go back. We still have to kill him. And meanwhile, like the engine's already exploding because some other debris like hit it. And so the plane's trying to ram him and Schwarzenegger's shooting the plane to try to divert it. 
It's so cool. <laughs> that is uh, very cool. Yeah. That's kind of like the peak of the movie. The alligator shootout's pretty great too. But then it just, the last final action scene is kind of let down, after, especially after all those. It's just kind of a dock showdown. There's just like an arms deal going down to the docks that mm. Schwarzenegger has to prevent. Um, but there's a lot of really cool stuff in the movie. Um, and Khan makes a really good villain. Um, okay, so um, next up for me is 1999. Unless you're uh, I technically have a 99 release, but I haven't seen it since it came out. And then it's 2000s for me. Okay, so the only 99 one is Mickey Blue Eyes. So I'm guessing you yeah, saw that when I it saw came it out. Literally, when it came out, I have almost no memory of it. Yeah, it's um, this is another one that I was talking about, like with the honeymoon in Vegas. It's like James Conn is casting this because he was Sonny Corleone. Yeah, totally. And the premise is that Hugh Grant is like a milk toast Hugh Grant type character who is in love with a uh, a mobster's daughter, I think. And then like he, I can't remember he, either he witnesses a murder or something for some reason he has to pretend to be a mobster to keep other mobsters from killing him so james Conn is like coaching him in how to be yeah uh, this uh, is about uh, as much uh, as i remember yeah but uh it's I, what, I, what i remember about it is that it it feels like one of those movies that you watch and you can imagine like this the original version of the screenplay actually had some character and interesting take on this material and it i think it got watered down like oh, by sure. the studio because there are there are things in there there are things that have survived that are like weird and dark there's there's a whole part where because scott thompson from kids in the hall plays an fbi agent i think okay and they have to set up hugh grant for a sting at like a mobster or whatever um and so we don't know all this. The way we find this all out is it starts with a shot of Hugh Grant and then he gets shot a bunch of times and it's really bloody. And then he's <laughs> like, Oh, that hurt. And then like you realize, Oh, those are squibs and they're preparing him for uh, this sting operation. But it's like little moments like that, that are, that, that feel like a little bit darker than the, the forgettable studio comedy that this mostly is. Sure. Um, I should watch it again. Maybe see yeah it's on hbo max i I almost put it on just to kind of get a remind myself of it but didn't have time uh all right so 2000 um i haven't seen the yards i know that's a a big one yeah the yards is great um i've been hearing for 22 years now (laughs) have not gotten around to it yeah i hadn't seen it at all and it had been on my list for a while because i i I mean i i usually dig james gray i'm not like this is another film twitter thing where i'm not like a james gray guy there are a lot of people on film twitter who are like huge james gray guys um i usually really like his movies and the yards was no different there's a lot of stuff in it that i think is a little contrived to look convenient but the general thrust of it is really good and all the performances are really good um con again plays like an upper mid-level guy he runs um one of several companies that's trying to bid out um future projects and stuff for the um new york transit system the subways basically um and as one would expect from a movie about the New York transit system, there's a lot of corruption involved in that and a lot of wheeling and dealing and shady circumstances. Um, James Conn chiefly uses Walking Phoenix to kind of deal those things. And he kind of introduces Walking Phoenix's character by saying like, yeah, Willie takes care of things for me. I don't ask a lot of questions kind of thing. Um, and so Conn's interestingly positioned in this place where he's kind of like the face of the business and knows that there's things going on that have to juice it, but doesn't know entirely how to navigate those worlds himself. 
So there are various times in the movie where he, because, you know, the drama ramps up and things get more corrupt and more dangerous and more uh, tenuous, he has to more, engage more directly with the corruption aspect of it. And he knows what needs to be done, but doesn't always know the way to do it or kind of how the kind of careful touch that walking Phoenix may be employed in doing it. And so he'll be a little more blunt maybe in how he plays it. And it's just kind of like really careful character texturing that both James Gray and James Conn build into the character um, where he's trying to be a little bit more respectable in the business he's in, but knows he's going to have to get his hands dirty from time to time. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's got a great cast in addition to Khan and Phoenix. Um, Mark Wahlberg plays this uh, James Khan's like sort of nephew um, who's mm. just got out of prison, is trying to set his life right. And of course, well, he gets dragged back in. Um, Charlize Theron uh, plays Joaquin Phoenix's love interest and James Khan's stepdaughter. Um, his Khan's wife and Charlize Theron's mother is played by Faye Dunaway, who's great and sort of like too rarely used by this period in her career in yeah. movies of this kind of quality. And um, Ellen, uh, what I say? Ellen Burstyn plays um, Mark Wahlberg's mother. So yeah, I mean, it's stellar cast all around and a really, really, really strong script. I think like Bottle Rockets, good evidence that Khan was still trying to work with like young directors or directors who were just kind of coming into their own and was still kind of turned on by interesting scripts and interesting material and was willing to kind of lend a hand which gets into the other big 2000 release for him with the gun yeah this is uh chris mcquarrie who was i guess kind of hot shit because he had written the usual suspects and one this is his, uh yeah and this was his um directorial debut uh and yeah something you keep pointing out once again he plays a guy who is um a career criminal who is a uh trusted top henchman of the main bad guy yeah um played by scott wilson um who's also in flesh and bone by the way though james Conn and scott wilson never have any scenes together in flesh mm. and bone um uh but he's not yeah again he's not the main guy he's he's um a he's a grinder a bruiser who's like uh so and he, as he describes himself a survivor this one i've seen many times and i actually i actually did watch this again recently um uh, and he yeah, refers to himself as a survivor because he's talking to uh, Nikki Cat and Tay Diggs play a couple of, you know, younger people in his line of work that he's like, not exactly a mentor to, but is kind of like telling him how it is. And he says, yeah. one, you know, one thing you the only thing you know about an old guy in this line of business is he's a survivor. Um, but uh, I don't know. There's a lot of twists and turns in the way of the gun. And I don't want to give too much uh, uh, away, but um, he is uh, he spent his whole, whole life, you know, taking orders and stuff. And maybe he's uh, angling for a bigger uh, move here, but yeah. I mean, it's, it's not, he's obviously this is basically horror and Ryan Philippi and, Juliet Lewis's movie first, but he's probably the fourth main character in the movie after that. I would also say in a big kind of, cast. Yeah. It also kind of gradually becomes his movie. I feel like he kind of starts to take more ownership into the plot. And part of it is, I just think that Ryan Philippi and Benicio del Toro's characters are so, so thinly sketched that it can only like kick off the movie and kind of get us going. Whereas James Caan just becomes more interesting as the movie goes along. Yeah. And even if he, and, I mean, he starts to get more screen time, but 
our interest is quickly like kind of captivated by him. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, um, he's got the most, uh, I mean, the movie is full of monologues, um, but he's got some, some fun ones. Uh, yeah. And I'm trying to dance around like the spoilers of the plot, but there's a reason he becomes more of the main character yeah, as, yeah. as it goes on that I don't want to, uh, give away, but I really enjoyed this movie watching it now, like 20 plus years later. Um, I, uh, I realized that like the, what I would have been like, probably not even 18 when that movie came out, I probably would have been on the verge of turning 18. And I think I thought it was cooler than it is, Sure, but I think the movie is aware that like Parker and Longbow, which is the names that they are, that, uh, Ryan Philippi and Benicio del Toro go by in the narration. They're never redressed by any name, by any other characters in the movie, even by each other. But uh, in the narration, they're Parker and Longbow. Um, they're like not good guys at all. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think that's pretty completely established. Yeah, and I think I thought they were cooler maybe when I was sure. Um, but uh, yeah, they're they're real pieces of shit from the yeah, from the jump. And the movie is um, a nasty piece of work. There's some uh, real unpleasant stuff that that happens uh, in in the movie. Some pretty gratuitous shots of a C-section at one point that are yeah. uh, really bloody. Uh, and again, like with. You, you mentioned yeah, first time directors like Bottle Rockets and the Yard, Bottle Rock and the Yard. But speaking of movies that landed their directors in director's jail, I mean, The Way of the Gun was not a success, and Christian Rocquari didn't direct again for a long time until he he wrote Valkyrie and Tom Cruise liked him, and then they made Jack Reacher, and now he's yeah. a big director again. But he, I mean, Christian Rocquari has said himself that, that he ended up in director's jail because of the way of the gun. Uh, and I get it. It's not, it's not, it's not a movie that like gives the people who would seem to like it, what they would want because it's often like obfuscated and it becomes more diffuse as it goes on. Um, and also it's very unpleasant. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time, it's not like a snatch type of like, let's watch no, these cool criminals be that. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of glad that he had to like go back into <laughs> script doctor world or whatever and kind of figure shit out. Cause I mean, I, the movie's good, but if he had kept making movies like this, I don't think he would have developed into being as strong a director as he is now or as yeah, strong. It's as not as good as I remembered it being. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of like structural stuff. That's really interesting. The kind of windy plot does generally assemble pretty well. And it's got a great kind of like slow-mo car chase towards the beginning. That's really, I think well executed. Yeah, um, yeah. But there's also just so much stuff in it. That's clearly just like, I'm sick of being a script doctor. These are all the stuff, things I want to do that no other script would let me do. And so I'm just going to put them in this script. It's just like, it, it's a two hour movie, man. It's not that strong a premise. We don't need like all that stuff at the beginning of them, like donating semen and trying to get through the screening process of like, <laughs> this is the right. beginning of the movie. We should have more going on here than what's yeah. happening. Um, but there's so a lot like of that. flashy dialogue the, the, in yes. the those early scenes have the flashier dialogue that i think becomes more it'd be it doesn't become more naturalistic as it goes on but the the dialogue becomes less flashy and more more up its own ass but in a way that i think the movie is self-aware about you know like the idea yeah, of tough i mean that, that car chase you mentioned 
is exactly what I'm talking about of like, this seems like a movie that would have a car chase in it. And this is Christian McQuarrie giving viewers a car chase that no one would ask for because <laughs> it's a car chase at like two miles per hour, yeah. <laughs> uh, which I, which I like. There's also a fun thing uh, that he does with the transitions in this movie. I don't know when was the last time you saw it. If you remember this, I just watched it for the first time this past week. Oh, okay. So there are multiple parts where like, there's a part where there's the, uh, the girl who who works at the gas station, like her mouth moves and you think she's saying something, but it's actually Juliette Lewis going into contractions and it yeah. cuts to that. And there's like multiple parts where like Nikki Cat uh uh yells, but then it actually turns out it's the doctor yelling because of the wounded or whatever. It's um those are fun. I yeah, guess. I mean there's little cool stuff like that. I, I just found, like I said, the Philippi and Totoro's character is pretty thin. And, um, I mean, James Conn was really just, I really like Juliette Lewis in it though, too. Hey, I always like her. Yeah. Um, now that I just uh, met her, I don't know where. Oh, she really? Is. I was just gonna say, yeah. I saw her at the airport once, but you have me one up. Yeah. I have a, I could show you a picture of Natalie with her. Um, right on. Uh, yeah. I feel like I was going to say, oh, um, for all the clever stuff that, that Christian Rukwari does in, um, the way of the gun, nothing will beat my favorite moment in Jack Reacher. Okay. When Jack Reacher is looking for a guy and all he knows about the guy is someone mentions that he worked at the auto parts store and he asks someone, a local in this town, like, Hey, if someone just said the auto parts store, <laughs> what would that refer to? And then it cuts to a shot of him pulling up to a place that is called default auto parts store. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> All right. Um, next up, 2002 City of Ghosts is the next that I have. Man, talk about movies I've never heard of before. Sure. Tell me about City of Ghosts. Uh, this is, yeah, um, it was kind of, well, it's Matt Dillon stars in it and directed it. Okay. And it was also a big deal was made about the fact that it was, it takes place in Thailand and Cambodia and was shot in Thailand and Cambodia. Um, and I think that's kind of the main draw of the movie is this. I'm, I'm trying to look up the technical specs on IMDb because in my mind, it's like a digital. Um, I don't know. This is shot in 35, but it has a very like early 2000s look sure. um, kind of the yards uh, does too, for that matter. It's like, yeah, man, this is taking me back. Um but uh, yeah, I don't remember much about the movie. Um, like it's a Matt Dillon vanity project in some ways. Sure. Um, it's also full of um, the music is all this like old um, uh, I don't even know what it's like old jazz or, or something mm. um, that I later learned that's like Matt Dillon's just like really into this stuff. And so he just sure. like filled the music with like stuff that Steve Buscemi and ghost world would like. Uh, um, <laughs> but I guess uh, similarly to Eraser, like Matt Dillon's a con man and, and James Conn plays his sort of mentor and yeah, he might turn out to be a bad guy as the movie goes on. As I, as I recall, it's been 20 years, but that's what I recall. I'm trying to think of like what chip Matt Dillon would be cashing in at this stage. Like, there's something about Mario as a big hit, but it's different genre, but maybe they yeah. just got him out there enough. Yeah, maybe. Um, trying to think of, see if he 
He's got um, an episode of Oz to his credit, and then a 2020 movie, a documentary called El Gran Falov, a documentary about Cuban scat musician Francisco Falov. So maybe that's the music that he's into. I love this. I love this new side of Matt Dillon. <laughs> um, well, that that this reminds me. I wish I could remember more about this type of music because sure, there's a story that I think I have told you off mic before. But one time, my wife this is before we were married. My wife Natalie and I were at a Versailles Cuban restaurant here in Los Angeles. Okay, and at the table next to us, I don't know what the relationship was, but there was a senior citizen man, probably 60 or so. And then a woman in her twenties having dinner together. And I think that they met because they are also fans of this same kind of okay. <laughs> music that Matt Dillon is fans of because the guy, the older guy would, could not stop dropping Matt Dillon's name. <laughs> All his stories were about Matt Dillon. I think he even like specifically mentioned city of ghosts, like helping pick out the music or something. So he's like Matt Dillon's bud on this specific Cuban music that he likes that is in this movie. This is way too much time on city of ghosts. <laughs> yeah. Did you even tell us that you told us a little bit about the movie? What was James yeah. Conn doing this movie? I said, he's the mentor to Matt okay. Dillon's con man. And he, I uh sort of eraser style might not be the best <laughs> i think i i was too wrapped up in trying to figure out what this movie is to remember you saying that <laughs> um, All right. uh 2003 dogville dogville dogville's yeah. great i don't know how you feel about dogville but i'm a big dogville fan yeah i mean i haven't seen it since it was new but i i loved it uh, and this is kind of the opposite of dick tracy he plays a gangster, but instead of only showing to the very beginning, he doesn't show up until the very end. Right. And he kills everybody. It's, it's literally the opposite. <laughs> it's the opposite. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's it kind of throws my big unifying James Conn theory out the window because here he definitely is like the biggest guy of all to the extent that like, you feel like he might be either God or Satan personified. Mm-hmm. Um, he's definitely like, it definitely fits into like the force of nature side of Con that I've also been talking up where like, he comes in and he says they should kill everybody. And that's, what's going to happen. Um, but he kind of like lends this every man kind of fatherly quality to it, where it's like, he's, he, like I say, he could be Satan or God, but he's also just like some guy and he's just talking to his daughter and they have a lot of weird history and uh, that somehow gets wrapped in like their views on morality. But he, I, I think a lesser actor could just come in and just play the ethereal part of it, which is still like, I think the movie brings enough of that, that Khan can just bring the kind of everyman quality that helps give it this weird extra texture. Okay. Um, well, yeah. um, it's a small part, so there's not a lot to say about it other than to say yeah. that like, it's a weird way to wrap up a movie that's as weird as Dogville, but I, man, I love Dogville. Yeah, I should watch it again. I, I definitely were liking it a lot. Uh, also in 2003, a very different movie from Dogville. Uh, John Favreau's Elf, which has uh, yeah. become a Christmas uh, perennial. Um, so I've seen so. it. I've, yeah, I've seen it multiple times. And uh, um, yeah, he, I mean, he's playing... He's not really the main character, but he has that Christmas movie character journey of like being the workaholic who needs Christmas to teach him to spend more time with his family. Uh, but we spend more time with the, the magical elf than with, with him, but it's a, uh, a very, uh, 
warm and funny performance, as you mentioned with Misery, he can be funny. Yeah, totally. And I think just the visual of old James Caan uh, automatically sets him up as like a tough guy to win over on Christmas. Right, right. Um, have you seen his one big venture into television, which started in 2003? Uh, Las Vegas? Yeah. No, but um, one of my first PA jobs was on, I think I've, I've definitely told this story on the podcast before, was on the same lot that they were, that they shot Las Vegas on. And I was in, at one point I got the security guard to let me in the, the few of us, like who worked on the movie I was working on, got the security guard to let us into the Las Vegas set, which is so weird to be like on a nondescript studio lot, walk up a <laughs> ramp through a garage door. And then you're in a Las Vegas casino. That's Hollywood very, baby. It was very weird. Um, but, uh, I went ahead and watched the pilot episode of Las Vegas. Oh. Uh, I checked it out from my local library. They had the first season on DVD. So um, yeah, I could watch the pilot episode of Las Vegas. Con uh, plays a, uh, the head of security for a big deal hotel and casino. Uh, he's like a former, I think CIA guy, some kind of like government spy agency and is definitely there to like lend cred to how complex uh, hotel and casino security is and, uh, Las Vegas. And, you know, I only saw the pilot. So it only kind of sets up the character. I wanted mm-hmm. to watch a couple more episodes, but I didn't get around to it. Still have the disc downstairs in the library. They've abolished uh, late fees. So I'm just going to hold on to that. Um, oh. But um, yeah, it, you can kind of tell that it's a point in his career where it's like time to take the easy money on TV and kind of play mm-hmm. consistent character and try to build that out. But that also kind of gives him license to have a little fun. And I mean, it's a very stock character for the pilot because uh, the he's kind of the co-lead alongside Josh Dumel, who plays kind of his young protege, who, would you know, it just accidentally slept with his daughter. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so there's that kind of tension running through it while they're trying to track down a series of um, people that kind of bring out different elements of their job. You know, they kind of are also emissaries for the hotel and try to uh win over various high rollers to come play for them etc cetera, etc cetera. um it definitely reminded me uh how boring most tv shows are now where they have like one plot for like three episodes <laughs> the early 2000s they were like can we get six plots into one episode let's do that um so there's a lot of plot in this episode and not all that revolves around con but um he has a lot of fun playing the kind of like overly protective dad who then, you know, that naturally kind of feeds into his job of being overly protective of the, the casino. And you can see why there's enough kind of meat on the bones to go for a, a few seasons of effort there. Um, so yeah, that's Las Vegas. All right. Then we've got uh, two cloudy with a chance of meatballs movies, but that jumps from 2009 to 2013. I don't know if there's anything else. In no, there for I got, you. I got one more movie in 2021, but other than that, I got the cloudy, chance of meatballs movies which um i don't remember him in the second one as much only because i only saw the once but i've seen the first one a number of times and um he has to be like the emotional core of a movie that's pretty much a joke machine and he can easily sell that um even just with his voice and the visual of a giant mustache um yeah i i'm a huge fan of the first one and me too um, and i watched i had not seen the second one i watched it in preparation for this and i kind of wish i just watched the first one again the second yeah. one has it has one of the things the first one has which is that incredibly fun visual style and like coming up with fun things totally. to do with food and there are food like animals in the second because the second one is the, the yeah. idea that the uh 
the island they lived on has now become like a, a habitat for food animals or whatever. And so right. it has a lot of fun with that. But you mentioned the first one being a joke machine. It absolutely is. The second one, I would say one in four charitably jokes are, are land. It just is not, it's not nearly as funny as the first one. Yeah. I mean, the second one I don't think was actually written by Lord and Miller, whereas yeah. the first one was. And so it's just kind of like in the model of, but not having like the consistent, persistent inspiration of just constant jokes. I remember Lord Miller talking about making the movie and somebody getting the note from the studio that they're like, there has to be some emotion in this movie. It can't simply all be jokes, yeah. um, which again, James Conn helps lend it. Um, yeah. But uh, not to the detriment of it being a joke machine by all means. Um, you said you have one more. Uh, yeah. Are you out? No, I have uh, his current last movie, Queen Bees. That's the one I got. Oh, you watched that? I watched it last night. <laughs> yeah, it's it's enticing with the cast that it has. And yeah. The, 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 like, if you hear it described as like, it's mean girls in a retirement home, I thought it'd be better than it is. Uh, yeah. But it's not very good. I mean, it's, it's pretty soft and it's pretty um, comfortable. And I mean, a lot of these kind of like old folks rom-coms usually are. Um, but I thought he was still like quite charming. I mean, like I hadn't, I clearly hadn't seen him in a movie in a while. And I was like, Oh, James Caan was old. Um, but he's still like, he's still got some moves and you can see why Ellen Burstyn would kind of fall for him. Yeah. Yeah. But he does look old. I remember this, uh, Dana Gould used to do a bit about, uh, he did a TV special with Bob Hope, like, (laughs) very late in Bob Hope's life yeah. and for the promo. He had to like put his arm around Bob Hope <laughs> and he said it was like a sweater full of light bulbs. <laughs> and I feel like that's kind of how James Conn comes across uh, sure. a, a little bit in this, in this movie, definitely on the older side, but that's, you know, it's going to happen to all God, you know, God willing. I'll, yeah. Uh, we should I'll, be so I'll, lucky to yeah. remain broad shouldered. Yeah. Midst our light bulb age. Yeah. I mean, I, I wanted to see kind of more recent stuff, but Queen Bees was the only one to kind of caught my eye. It seemed like he did a lot of like fairly low budget crime movies in the last 10 years. Nothing really kind of hitting the map. Um, aside from perhaps undercover grandpa, of course. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I don't remember that I haven't heard of. Yeah. I mean, um, that's my boy is a movie I've at least heard oh, right. of and he's yeah. in that. Um, but yeah, it, unfortunately it kind of seemed like, the offers started to dry up. And I mean, a lot of that is just like the business has changed and there aren't as many of the kind of like mid budget thrillers that still get a decent theatrical release that kind of like made his name as, uh, as the star years passed where he could still get in um, solid movies Um, and certainly like aging out of playing like an elf type of role or that kind of thing. um, Can't help, but um yeah, I mean, obviously an amazing career and one that I'm really glad that I took the time for this episode to kind of invest a little bit more mm-hmm. energy in kind of seeking out the nooks and crannies of. Um, now, IMDb is not always reliable in this, but it does um, seem to imply that he has another movie in the can, a Philip Noyce movie yeah, called Fast Charlie, where Pierce Brosnan plays Charlie. I'm going to read you just the first half of sentence of the <laughs> of the premise uh when his aging mob boss is whacked i'm like okay john james Conn is going to get killed in the opening scene of this movie yeah probably unfortunately it's kind of, did you see um 
speaking of Adam Sandler movies, did you see Hustle, the Netflix movie Hustle? No, I, I really want to, oh. but I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, it's it's quite good. But I was like, remember like seeing the opening credits and being like, oh, cool, Robert Duvall's in this. <laughs> <laughs> it's a similar thing. He's in the very beginning of the movie. Sure. Um, um, I, I do. I am curious about the movie, though. I mean, I like Philip Noyce. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that and uh, and it's Pierce Brosnan and Marina Baccarin. Um, so uh, yeah, including and some other people that I like. So uh, I hope. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to be too disrespectful of Queen Bees, um, but uh, I hope that it's not his last. I hope that sure <laughs> we get to see him in something else. But uh, still, great cast for Queen Bees. Oh yeah. Um, all right. We did it. Well, we That's did it. James Conn. That we, yeah, we covered James Conn's filmography. Tell us what major like gems we, we missed. Um, but also, uh, watch, uh, the rain people in flesh and bone. Those are, and the gambler. If you haven't seen the gambler, I would say, watch that too. Those are some that I had not seen before I did this, that I would, uh, definitely recommend to people. Yeah, I think the big standouts for me of like new stuff was like the yards and hide in plain sight for the two that I mean I like ring people a lot too. Um, but um for the new stuff, um the yards and hide in plain sight really stood out. All right. Well, um other than that, you can find us at battleshipretention.com. Um you can email us at David at Email me, I guess, at David about battleshipretention.com. And check out my other podcast, the one where I met your mother. That's at battleshipretention.com or on wherever you find podcasts. But also, again, Tyler's GoFundMe. You can find the link Absolutely. to the GoFundMe at caringbridge.org slash visit slash Tyler and Jennifer Smith. Scott, what do you got? Uh, still locked on Twitter, still on Letterboxd. And I'll be back on the show fairly regularly over the next several weeks and months. Yeah, um, we will see. Uh, but yeah, you are going to be our go-to uh uh fill in at um, the very least uh we got marked that next profile episode which is going to be the most energy i've ever invested in anything in this uh film criticism business so do you look think, forward to that okay i mean right now the the um the record for battle to pretension episode length is westerns with mariah at over just over five hours um do you think uh, our next profile, which we're not, should be obvious to people, but we're not saying what it is until the episode comes out. Do you think it'll challenge five hours? Yeah. Well, if you know me and you know recent film news of the type of people we do profiles on, you can yeah. probably guess. But um, I, I was going to tell you, yes, we need to make sure we're blocking off a sizable chunk of time. We can't do these late starts and uh, be on a night where everyone's tired and needs to be somewhere. It's uh, It's going to be an endeavor for sure. Yeah. Looking forward to it. All right. Um, thanks for filling in, Scott. Oh, anytime. This was a pleasure. Thank you at home for listening. Hey, we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.